Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focused Compounding, sitting next to the co-founder, Jeffrey Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? Uh, it's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else as well. If this is the first time you're tuning in, be sure to check all of our content, 250 plus episodes. Um, and you can get access to that uh, through wherever podcasts are normally listened to. So iOS, Spotify, um, Amazon, um, what other, we're on YouTube, all sorts of uh, different outlets. So be sure to check it out and you'll find all of our content. I think we actually, we either passed or we're coming up to our three-year anniversary of the podcast. Oh, okay. I was thinking about that the other day. So I got to oh. check to see the exact date, but I'm pretty sure it was in January. Okay. So we're, we're right there. So anyways... Um, just keeps getting better with time, Jeffrey. Um, we're going to be talking about today Tenneco, which okay. this is the stock that a lot of people love to reference when they talk about Charlie Munger. So back in 2017, I had, I guess I was very lucky mm -hmm. to be at the Daily Journal meeting in California. Yeah. At this time, there probably was maybe less than 100 people there. Now it's like a huge you know, thing. Like I saw in 2018, they had to even get a bigger venue. And then 2019, a bigger venue. But I was there in 2017. It was awesome. And afterwards, Munger um, sat there and was just basically answering questions by a group of us that stayed after just to kind of hang out. And one thing that I always think about, and I was telling you this last time, when I think about this meeting was probably about an hour to maybe an hour and a half after the meeting was over and he was sitting there just answering questions from everybody. Somebody came up to him, I'm assuming his driver or somebody that was just part of his, mm -hmm. you know, his personal team, I guess you could say, and said, Charlie, it's time to go if you want. And Munger was like, no, let's stay. There's people that have come from so far. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, he was referring to the people that like flew there from China to listen to him speak. So he stayed, he answered questions. It was awesome. I'll personally never forget it. Um, and there's a quote that he said or something that he said from this uh, Q&A session afterwards that has been circulated widely on Twitter, publications, people always love to talk about it. And it was when he talked about Barron's. And he said, I read Barron's for 50 years. In 50 years, I found one investment opportunity in Barron's, out of which I made about 80 million for almost no risk. I took the 80 million and gave it to Lee Lu, who turned it into 400 million or 500 million. That's how you know you're really wealthy when you're like, eh, 400 or 500 million. So I have made 400 million or 500 million out of reading Barron's for 50 years and following one idea. I didn't have a lot of ideas. I didn't find them easily, but I did pounce on one. And that was the quote from uh, the Daily Journal meeting. Mm -hmm. And the company that he pounced on was Tenneco. And we're going to talk about it today. So I, from doing some research around it, I was trying to gather the facts and we're going to pull up the financials and just really see if we could reverse engineer and see okay. if we could, you know, learn anything from it and, you know, whatever we could take away. And because of QuickFS, we could pull up 20-year uh, financials. Mm -hmm. So we could go back to 2000, 2001, 2002, the time frame yeah. when he was looking at it. So he bought the stock um, around $1.50 to $2 per share, from what I could find from checking a bunch of different resources. Mm -hmm. And he also bought bonds, 11% notes, yielding 35% to maturity. Right, okay. So he, he bought... They were 11% when issued, yeah, but they and were 35 to Correct, yeah. correct. So I wonder if... Um, 
if part of the thought process was there was well if the equity gets wiped out at least my um, you know bonds can maybe get converted into equity could be as a way to you know hedge sure. that margin of safety but collecting the 35% a year isn't bad either facts absolutely true so within a few years the stock went up to $15 at one point at the point that Munger sold the bonds went back up to par value and were called in by the company in conjunction with the refinancing all in all, the ten million that he originally invested, it turned to, or it says he made eighty million, and then he parlayed that investment into Lee Lu's fund. Mm-hmm. Um, just so I guess a, a little bit of a background on the whole situation. Let's see. So Tenago had a history of consistent profits, but faced headwinds in the late nineties. Shares had fallen from over $10 a share to under $2 a share, which is the point at when he started looking at it. Tenego had 40 million shares outstanding, a market cap of 80 million, an enterprise value of 1.6 billion. Total debt was 1.5 billion. By 2002, the operating income have improved from losses of 130 million in 2001 to profits of 31 million in 2002. But during this process, I guess gap profits were really skewed to DNA uh, because cash flow from operations was very positive during this time. Okay. And I think his you know, mindset going into it was basically that they were going to deleverage and that the equity would move up. Mm-hmm. Um, so as you can see right here, if you're looking at the screen, he probably bought it, it looks like in 2000 to 2001, this area down here, and then he sold it around $15 per share. So pretty crazy, great trade. He, he loves to talk it. about it. Twice, right? You would have gotten three like, times. Or it could be a three, third time, right? Three times it's been at that same price, and three times it's been at those same highs. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. very interesting, isn't it? So we could pull a lot up of stock. Yeah. Yeah, and we could pull up. Um, let's see. I mean, I thought it was interesting that he bought the bonds as well. Mm-hmm. Although that could be in part because of the size of the market cap, there wasn't enough common stock available compared to what he wanted to buy. You know, I was thinking about this too. I'm like, you know, some of these opportunities, he always talks about the way you get wealthy is by having $10 million in a checking account mm-hmm. and pouncing when the opportunity comes. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about that. I was like, gosh, okay, what if you had 10 million, but it was so illiquid or you just right. there wasn't enough shares to buy or something like that. How would you? Um, There's a lot more bonds, we just said. Mm-hmm. So if you do the math on the bonds... Um, at face value, what do we say? There was one and a half billion, but then it's still a lot of bonds. There's probably 10 times more market value in bonds than there was in the um, stock or something, depending on how long it was till they could be called. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So we could pull up, um, we could go into their 10K, or I did pull the financials from QuickFS as well. I thought it'd be kind of fun to look at it. So look at, we, if you're looking at the screen right now, um, and I'll try talking through it for people listening on the podcast, but yeah, 2000 and 2001, um, uh, let's see, the market cap was down to, in let's see, 2000, it was 109 million market mm-hmm. cap, and then it down to 80 million, 82 million in 2001. Um, and you could see right there, it was on a gap basis, uh, you know, very negative. But I guess we could go over to the cash flow statement and look. In 2000, they still generate 234 million in cash. In 2001, 141 million, and then you know they never actually burned operating cash flow, which I thought was pretty interesting. Right. Yeah. And for an established company, that's normal. Um, for a lot of the companies we see today, right, when you have startups and things like that, you see ca- negative cash flow from operations, but it's something you always want to see positive cash flow from operations. It's mm-hmm. one of the first things we look for. Yeah, and this was an auto part manufacturer right. as well, is what I should say. Um, that had a successful, you know, 90s, and then uh, ran into a lot some like issues. That, yeah, especially if they're based a lot on providing for the 
um, Detroit uh, manufacturers. Mm -hmm. I wonder how much of this too was part of the times. So this is when the tech bubble was happening. So nobody cared about anything, any sort of manufacturing companies or anything like that. It was all technology stocks. Kind of like also there was tight credit. I mean, what what was the year that he bought? What do we know about the exact date? Because we just read the market cap as of the beginning of two thousand, no, end of two thousand one. Yeah. So right around then, the very end of two thousand one, after a few months after September eleventh. there would have been a lot of junk bonds available and stuff that would have been a tough t- there would have been a lot of high yield stuff so mm-hmm. it's you know um it we don't remember as much of a recession or anything but it was did have a lot of opportunities for high yield bonds at that time mm-hmm. yeah it was i mean from what i could find from different sources it said that he bought it for a buck 50 to two dollars per okay. share so call it maybe 2001 area mm-hmm. Um, so I thought that was interesting and I thought it was kind of cool to take a look at, do you think this is ever a situation where you would feel comfortable going into it? Or do you think the debt would automatically kind of scare you away? I mean, we look at companies all the time that the EV is, you know, sometimes way more than the market cap because they're carrying so much debt. It's like, how do you handicap that situation? Is this really, well, the company's plan was to deleverage so you could feel more comfortable that the equity wouldn't get wiped out and would move up once they did that? Um, he did this 100% with his own money, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I could see you doing something, uh, uh, I don't know this exact thing, but something with my own money that no one else ever knows about. Now people found out about him doing this um, in something like that. But I think it would be different in a fund or something like that. Uh-huh. So if we look to get some ideas on the, because it really depends on the cost stuff. So can we go to ratios? Yeah, sure. Because they have ratios, I believe, going back to the beginning, right? Or as yeah. far back as the ratios. 2000, go. correct. Okay, yeah. so that will help us here. So if we go down to the ratios, the important things are, um, we don't have a lot of price ratios for this, actually. That they or do they? Yeah, we have price earnings, price? valuations, and stuff. Okay, what valuation? Well, was in the two thousand, two thousand one, two thousand two, P was negative, but price right. to sales zero point zero three, zero point zero two, and zero point zero five from two thousand to two thousand two. Right, but then you have the leverage coming in, um, so it's fairly cheap on an EV basis. If I just did that right. Um, so if, what were the margins like generally? Um, gross margins in the 21.6%, yeah, 19.8%, 20.9%. I don't know. I mean, there are some features of this that look, so if you go to quick FS and look, you know, which you can do at your own time and everything, take as long as you want to look at it. Um, there are some features, even if you go back there to when he was making this investment that if the period before then looked like I suspect it did in the nineties and stuff, then you would have thought that this company would continue to operate and operate fairly, um, consistently. Uh, however, it might be in real need of recapitalization, right? Mm -hmm. But we've talked about recapitalization before. So let's say even if you thought, um, like we talked about with movie theaters, right? Mm. If you could get the lowest price that there had been on some of those stocks, or, or actually well, the one we really talked about, I think, was Dave and Buster's, that in a sense, um, if it's going, if you can figure out things about it, it's going to survive and will be able to access capital. It may not be that important because even if you're diluted down by half or by three quarters, uh, it could still be a bargain. Um, 
in other words, like even if there was, there'd have to be a probability, the most likely situations you get diluted by a lot. Um, and that's definitely the case. I mean, with what you were saying with the price to sales being as low as it was, um, you just because this is very, very cheap for a company that's like consistently making some money, just like we talked about from cash flow from operations, operating income, the things that are pre capex, but also pre, um, payment on interest mm-hmm. right now he found it in barons in an article i assume about it yeah and then i assume there would be more context about what they were doing so if as long if he knew that they were intending to pay down debt or refinance and all those sorts of things and that could have been um helpful the other thing is like i said it may have been specific I, we have a chart right yeah it may have been specific to the time period so can if we look at the chart see what might have happened is that the deterioration in the stock price became more rapid at some point than the deterioration in the business. So this happens a lot with over-leveraged businesses. For a while, like the business is probably over-leveraged in many of those years we see on the left-hand side of the chart. But no one's concerned about it because they're making they're they're doing okay they're able to refinance everything once you are a very leveraged business and then it becomes difficult either your business gets worse and so people are worried about you being able to borrow and stuff like that or it and or it becomes an environment where it's hard to borrow then you suddenly have really rapid deterioration in the stock price um, and we see that with the huge stock price drops in the stock each time it's probably exacerbated by um by debt mm-hmm and I don't just mean that it has a lot of debt. So the EV is moving. So the EV, is, the market price is moving by an appropriate amount for small changes in the EV. I actually mean um, that people are like responding mostly to it as whether or not it'll go into bankruptcy. Um, if we look there, I'd say that's that's a pretty rapid drop there. And what when is that? Is that in two thousand? What year am I looking at? There? Yeah, this is two thousand. Like, that right is here. Two thousand. Two thousand one is right over here. Yeah. So, like, he may have bought it after it had descended for quite a long time, mm-hmm. but there's an extremely rapid drop before there that would be hard to see in the um, finan- deterioration of the financials. So, it's extreme that way. We don't have the multiples for before, but what would have happened is the multiples contracted from something normal looking to something totally abnormal. Mm-hmm. Um, we can look at the balance sheet and things like that, right? We have the balance sheet from back then, so you can get some idea. Um, so... We have the balance sheet for 2000, 2001? Yes, yeah, right here. Please okay. Do. So what do we have for things like total liabilities? and? So total, let's see. So total assets, $2.8 billion. Total liabilities, $2.5 billion. Um, and this is 2000. Let's see. And then total shareholder equity, $344 million, But total li- liabilities, and obviously it was $2.8 billion, Okay, but. so we could just go over some of the things I would look at. Like I was looking at some companies this past week that I expect to file for bankruptcy within the next few months or something. So we'll look at this and see whether we think that that kind of thing is present. I don't know that they will. In the past, they were able to raise capital. So if things keep going well, they can again. But in other words, look and see if we think this company needs to raise capital. Mm -hmm. So we start with the liabilities. Um, And then we ask questions like, how big are those liabilities and stuff? And in what form are they? So the most important thing is just what's the total liabilities? Um, and then compare that pretty quickly to the current, to the cash and to current assets. And we also compare debt. Um, what form are their liabilities in? So they have 1.4 billion. This is in 2000. Mm-hmm. So they had total liabilities of 2.5 billion. Of that 1.4 billion was long-term debt. 
and it looks like uh, 92 million was short-term debt. Okay, so they had 1.5. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then they had cash at the time of 35 million, oh, but total current assets was 1.1 billion, so about 487 million in receivables. Right, and what were their current liabilities? Current liabilities, 809 million. Okay, so they do actually, you know, I, I don't know if it, which date it was as, as of that he bought it that year or the next, um, but they did have actually some uh, excess of current assets over current liabilities, mm-hmm. um, which is interesting, but total liabilities exceeding current assets because of the amount of debt. So it's a question of refinancing the debt. Um, and then you look at things like the, like we said, the cash flow statement and, uh, actually does the income statement show EBITDA on this one? Cause maybe that's what people so. care more about here. Yeah, it does. Okay. So generated in 2,266 million in EBITDA. Right. And they had one point, their EV was like 1.6 billion. Mm-hmm. Um, so there you go. You're about, at, you know, f- five to six times or something like that. Yeah. Um, so it, you know, price EVD, but five to six times, it's not, you know, I mean, there's things that are cheaper. Um, so that's one of the interesting parts about that. I mean, when you're looking at those companies that you just referenced that you suspect will go into bankruptcy mm-hmm. unless they raise capital, I mean, what are you looking at? So maybe like in this situation, if you were looking at it yeah. with a fresh pair of eyes like you were with those other companies, I mean, what are you trying to handicap? What are you thinking about? So biggest issues is very low levels of cash, then very low levels of current assets, very high levels of liabilities, um, failure to generate cash flow from operations. So there's a couple of them, um, and they've been public on a list exchange and stuff for over 10 years in which they've never generated positive cash flow from operations. And so their cash burn in different cases is different amounts of time, but in one case it's probably less than three months, in another like a year. Um, given that they have so little cash on hand, um, and they don't generate cash flow operations, it actually sucks up cash. Um, they need to put more money into the business to do that. And so it isn't a problem of generating cash, but then you have a lot of liabilities, which is something to work with. This is interesting, this stock, because in some ways it's probably uh, a normal value stock, but the leverage inherent in it is so big. Um, because you, all the upside is in the equity, right? Mm-hmm. Or actually, there's a lot of upside in the bonds, too, because the the bonds happen to also be trading very cheap. So as it turned out, I shouldn't say that. I mean, for for equity investors, a lot of times we assume that the price that we see for debt is the amount that you would actually be able to buy it for. But in reality, sometimes just like the stock, it's at way below par, which is the case here. So you could buy either one. So if we actually, um, that's the part I don't understand from this is the yield to maturity thing. So when they do the calculation, you do a calculation on yield to worse because he was being called in a couple of years or whatever from this. So the question would be, how long was that? If we knew exactly how long it was till the bonds were called and he knew that they could be called then, then we could figure out from that thing that they said about yield to maturity thing, which if we assume that that's not exactly what they meant, that they meant yield to worst, um, that uh, we could figure out how cheap they were. It's very possible the bonds were also something that could return like three times or something, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it depends. But if the bonds were able to be called very soon 
and you still were going to get a really high return, then it's not necessarily the case that the stock was a much better investment than the bonds here. So the bonds might have also been very, very cheap. So the enterprise value I'm calculating, you know how we do enterprise value calculations all yeah. the time? So mm -hmm. I'm saying the enterprise value was five or six times. That's true if the bonds were trading at par, but we know they weren't. So if the bo bonds were trading uh, at a third of par, mm -hmm. okay, then it's two times enterprise value. Mm -hmm. It's very cheap, and you should buy the bonds. You could buy the stock too if you want. Um, and he probably bought as much stock as he could, but also as much bonds as he could. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so he bought it, I think it was 2001 area, and then he sold it in late 2004. Um, and the stock, at least from what we have here, went from just, and it goes by the dates, like when they pull the data, um, 82 million market cap to call it 740 million in um, market capitalization. Do you think in this situation it really would be trying to understand the narrative too? Like, are they going to deleverage, and is the business going to be able to do that without having to, um, I guess you could say, like reorganize or uh, wipe the equity out or anything like that, recapitalize? Maybe, but if he was buying the bonds, then you know he'd be participating in that either way. Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of it hinges on how cheap the bonds were, because the other thing is. If the bonds were really that cheap, a few things could happen. Um, one, you could buy the bonds. So you don't even have to buy the stock. You could buy the bonds, you'd get a good return. Um, even if things went wrong, you might be somewhat better protected. We don't know a lot of details about the bonds. Um, but the other thing is, let's say that you could, things could get reorganized or whatever, that more money could be put into it, right? So you sell off a division and you get cash for it. Well, then you can turn around and you buy your bonds, right? So you could retire thousand dollars worth of bonds for what three hundred four hundred dollars i don't know what it was at the time but you could do a lot of things that would reduce how much you have to pay in the future and we know from looking at the business the business itself on an operating basis is fine mm -hmm. um i mean that continued to be the case but from what i can tell for the next 20 years actually the stock continued to be very similar not a lot changed um in that the I'm sure they acquired a lot of things and stuff, but it continued to have the same issue, which is that for a long time, it would have looked like a fairly predictable, if it hadn't carried any debt and stuff, sort of business in terms of operations. But there would have always been this issue of what about the finan the financing of it, mm -hmm. you know? Because even if you compare things like free cash flow versus cash flow from operations stuff, you can see some issues sometimes from that about how much they have to use to pay down stuff. Because see, like the free cash flow looks good in some years, but if you think about it, how much debt they originally had out, they sometimes have five or six or more years of um, debt out in terms of free cash flow. Mm -hmm. So this is a pretty traditional business that way and that like um, it is over leveraged probably, um, or it's very leveraged and it has a lot of the operations are fine for the most part. Um, because if you, we're looking at a cash basis, which is really how you have to look at this. And there's a fairly high degree of consistency in that very rarely. I mean, we're not seeing any numbers and this is after um, Charlie bought in. So, mm -hmm. you know, but even after that, um, which wasn't a good time period for the industry and stuff, you don't have years that are very bad in terms of cash flow from operations. So it's not that operationally challenging to finance the business. I mean, to me, it's very hard to analyze because I need to know more about the bonds. Mm -hmm. But if you knew more about the the price of the bonds, um, because like I said, from the article thing that you read back to me, the problem with that is I don't know what that means. If they really meant to yield to maturity and stuff, I don't know what that means. But if they was trading at a very deep discount, um, the bonds, then the entire enterprise value of the company was very cheap. 
And then you could definitely buy on that basis. Um, I'd have no problem doing that. Have you ever invested in a company that had a lot of leverage? Yes. I mean, I've invested in financial companies with lots of leverage, obviously, mm-hmm. but I've also invested in companies, yeah, that had lots of leverage. Where are um, we here? And it usually hasn't gone well. No? I'm trying to think. Um, in what cases? Operating leverage or financial leverage? Financial leverage. Um, I'm trying to think of cases where it's gone well, where I've invested in companies with a lot of leverage. I can't really think of uh, any. I'm having a hard time scrolling through for this cash flow statement here. I just wonder if there's any like takeaways you could have from the situation. So is it when you have a business that you, you know, always generates cash and you're looking at it from a cash basis and they do have leverage, but the business itself is actually predictable and management sounds like they're going to deleverage. Well, if you have a business with a very long history that's fairly predictable on a cash basis, and then it's very cheap on an enterprise value basis, then it's usually going to work out, I would say, if you buy into it. Uh, it works out better than people think. Um, the problems are, uh, I would say operational issues are harder to solve than financial issues. So if you were going, if you were really interested in doing debt stuff, whatever, um, I do think that historically it made more sense to be interested in like like reorganization of a supermarket, reorganization of a railroad. Because those things and what the business we're looking at here were generative of cash without the interest payments and the um, debt repayments uh, consistently year after year and everything. If you, you have a bit more of a problem if you're talking about a tech company or something, um, those are the kinds of things where you can have bankruptcies that are very different. Um, and then it's just an enterprise value issue. How cheap was it on enterprise value? My guess here is that it was incredibly cheap. Um, but we're still, I think the biggest problem here is doing the calculation that it doesn't look that cheap because we're using the face value of the debt and the debt was nowhere near the face value. I think the biggest lesson there is to figure out what the actual price the debt's trading at. And they will mention that sometimes on things like Value Investors Club and stuff. And you have professional investors who look up bond prices. But I've often read things where it's assumed that the debt should be calculated for enterprise value as if it's at face value when in fact it's nowhere near par. Yeah. It's nowhere near where it was issued. I mean, if the stock is down 90%, it's not a surprise that the debt isn't trading at hundred cents on the dollar, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, But stock investors always use yesterday's stock price, but not um, whatever the debt happened to be. And like I said, there's things you could buy back debt. The, the, I mean, there's lots of different things that could be in your favor. Um, And the most, is what he did. He bought the debt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just wonder, I mean, the funny thing is, is so he took that and he parlayed it into Lee Lu's fund, but he read Barron's for 50 years. And this was the idea that he bet big on and he pounced on. And I just find that the most fascinating part. I mean, what's that hit rate over, you know, 50 years of Barron's? I mean, Barron's comes out once a weekend. I mean, it's like nothing. Yeah, you know? it, it gives you a good idea because, yeah, it's it's like whatever. Um, One in 20 plus thousand or something like that. Yeah, it's it's a lot. Um, so I think the one that's noticeable for it is compared to like Buffett and stuff, it definitely has a focus on the upside. So probably why Munger passed on most things is that there isn't as big an upside. Um you know that's why he acts so where he like because he has a really really big up he viewed it as like massive asymmetry i get that would be true i think that's very different from buffett yeah 
So I think that he saw it as having a very big upside that way, yeah. But it's also interesting he also bought the bonds. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you could say, oh, he's buying the stock because he's trying to use the leverage on it just like in an option or something, you know. But that's not really true because he was also buying the bond, which defeats the purpose of, you know, buying the stock. Yeah, I wonder if he did that just in case the equity did get wiped out. And maybe just like you said, that's just what he could buy too, buy a lot of it. Yeah, but if you think about it, depending on how cheap those bonds were, even if the equity didn't... um, I mean, the enterprise value, the the EV was very, very low. Mm -hmm. So I, you might have worked out in any way. uh, To be honest, it might have worked out if you got paid off on the bonds, but it also could have just worked out in the sense that if you, if he was able to buy up everything, stock and bond, if you imagine that you could buy the entire enterprise value of the company, it may have been very cheap. I don't know because I don't like I don't have the historical bond prices. Got it. Yeah, it would be very interesting to to hear him talk a little bit more about this situation and what he thought about it. But yeah, from what I've read on from a few different sources, it was very much that he didn't think the business was going to have to restructure. It was generating cash and um, they were going to deleverage. So he felt very comfortable that the equity would would get moved up. But like you said, too, it is very interesting that he bet pretty big on the bonds and everything. And I wonder how much of that is liquidity, how much of that is because he just wanted to buy everything he absolutely could or because they're trading at a massive discount or what. Um, But nonetheless, it's very interesting to look at. And he made a ton of money. But the most interesting thing from it, takeaway wise for me, is the waiting for the big idea and pouncing. He does talk about it like it's so simple too. He's like, we own, what did he say? Like three stocks, Berkshire Hathaway, Lelou's Fund, Costco. Right. And he's like, it doesn't need to get more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you could look at Lelou's Fund as a conglomerate of some sort. You could look right. at Berkshire Hathaway for what it is, a conglomerate, and then there's Costco. But it's the punch card way of thinking about it that you really sit there and wait until you have the opportunity and you probably only do get three to four big ideas in your life. And he said that was something that was very instilled in him from a very young age. His grandpa would talk about that a lot with him. So he said from a very young age, his grandpa was a judge. Mm -hmm. He knew that you only get a couple hand, a handful of opportunities and you have to really seize them. So that's the most important thing to me. And the biggest takeaway from this is just the willingness to turn over rocks and be okay with having a very low hit rate. Mm -hmm. And then when you pounce, pounce hard. Yep. Very fascinating. Very fascinating. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us on the Focus Compounding Podcast. If you want to support the podcast, you do it very easily by giving us five stars on iTunes and leaving us a rating review. If you're watching us on YouTube, hit that subscribe button, thumbs this video up. Let's hack that algorithm. We appreciate all the support and we will see you in the next podcast.